Our scripture reading today is Luke 1, verse 57, and then verses 67 through 79. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you once again. Uh, my name is Sid, again, uh, pastor here at North Cross. If you're new, we're glad you're here. Um, well, actually, we'd like to welcome you, but also invite you. There is a welcome table out there. You can sign your name if you want to get emails from us. Um, feel free to, to grab a mug. Uh, if you're not um, new and you've been here multiple times, uh, we're really glad to have you too. And uh, part of what we do is actually come together weekly uh, to, to see each other and also to worship, worship alongside each other. Well, around December, in anticipation of Christmas, the historical and global church has celebrated a season called Advent. Advent is a season, but it's also like a yearly hot heart posture that God's people get into. It's a month of waiting with eager expectation for the Adventus, or the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, Advent uh, and Christmas this year, we're going to actually read through and study Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, there, we're looking at different people's trembling encounters with God's message and God's messengers, the angels. And then their, but also our, need to sing through what the living God means. And really, this looks like often deeply theological and joy-filled songs at least in Luke 1 and 2. The singer-songwriter Michael Card describes us need to sing out loud, to share our most spiritual and emotional experiences this way. And so we sing because only a lyrical response can make sense out of a situation that otherwise leaves you speechless. I love that quote. And if we're honest, and we're kind of half paying attention to the course of our lives, the gifts and the shocks that we experience so often in the Christian life, especially this time of year and Christmas, they leave us at a loss for words, but also a need to sing. But before we look at the why and the what of Zechariah's song in Luke chapter one, would you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Let's pray. Father, um, I confess and we confess that we are all over the place uh, this time of year. Um, this, this time of year has so much emotional freight to it that we are carrying um, sadness and joy, confusion and clarity, um, anger and peace 
And Lord, we just ask you to meet us, um, whether we're at one pole or the other, or whether we're somewhere in between with those emotions. And I pray that you would meet us where we are spiritually, um, whether we are skeptical, or whether we're seeking, or whether we're right beside you, um, and today is an extension of a, a whole day's worth of ceaseless prayer and worship. Lord, wherever we are, would you meet us there, and would you dwell richly among us by your spirit, but also through your word, and use this time together praying, uh, but also looking at your words, um, that, you would, that you would produce fruit through it, that you would help us to come as we are, but not leave the same as we were. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, tis the season for Christmas cards, isn't it? Aren't you getting to stacks full of Christmas cards? Pictures of smiling collared shirt children. Uh, pictures of singles or couples with beloved dogs. Uh, they're just stacking up in your mailbox, right? Or if you're a college student, there will be family friends posing over messages of peace and joy and good tidings. Paste it all over your fridge when you get home. Okay, that's what gonna, you're going to see. Mindful of this season, Fleming Rutledge writes about one Christmas card that shocked her and her husband. The outside of the card was this orange, bold orange-red color. And it had a phrase printed clearly right kind of center smack in the middle. And it was a, it was a part of the verse that we're looking at in this passage, verse 78. From on high, our Lord will bring the rising sun. But then you kind of open up the card and there is a black and white photograph of a small child caught by a ray of sunlight. Um, and he's sitting there without the energy to smile or to frown. He's just sitting there in the shadows of a rundown government housing courtyard. And the rest of the verse is printed on the bottom of that photo and the inside of that card to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And as you can imagine, that card stirred up a lot for Fleming Rutledge and her husband. And so they spent several moments flipping back and forth over and over, opening up the card and looking at the front cover um, over and over again, going over this card physically, but also in their minds. And we see this reality over and over again in our lives, don't we? We have this sense of even in the commercial sprawl of interstate exits and also the carefully planned cul-de-sacs of suburban living, there's these weathered faces and weathered cardboard signs at major traffic lights, right? There's the child at school that smells sour. There's a relative that can't keep steady work. There's darkness and the shadow of death all around us. This is not to mention the more personal darkness that for people that we all kind of experience that each of us has to sit in. I mean, Christmas can be an agonizing season for people who have never gotten married. It can be a agonizing season for people who were married and are now widowed or divorced. It can be difficult for couples trying to have a child all we do is talk about birth narratives. And Christmas can also rub some hopeful salts in our angry wounds. This time of year can make us feel the bitter sting of life not working the way we want it to work. Whether that's kind of sadly as normal as too much to do and too many people to please, 
and then too little time and too little energy to show up and save the day, or at least just save some face. Or it's something about your life that feels out of control or just failing. It could be your health, your living situation, a job, your relationship with a family member or a friend. Merely speaking about this darkness feels like admitting defeat, doesn't it? So what do we do with this giant Christmas promises that we see of rising light there in the darkness, that darkness? How do we reconcile such huge predictions of salvation and mercy and peace with the ordinary little pockets of dingy darkness that surround us and fill us full. Fleming Rutledge names two typical strategies that we employ, sentimentality and cynicism. This time of year, sentimentality is rampant. (laughs) It's this kind of false, cheery, fake light in the darkness. Right? It reduces Christmas to children, cute animals, and motherhood. Right? It's working up of the greatest possible quantity of emotion on the cheapest possible terms. That's not my own thought, but it's a great way of describing sentimentality. The working up of the greatest possible quantity of emotion on the cheapest possible terms. All because we fear facing our world's dark and disagreeable truths. Therefore, in the words of Flannery O'Connor, the writer, sentimentality is a distortion, an early arrival at a mock state of innocence. We want the promised light of Christmas now and and on our terms, but the Advent season reflects God's refusal to let Christmas come too soon. But there are others of us who adopt the opposite strategy. We adopt the deep, bitter darkness of cynicism. It's easy to come to a point where it will be clear to you that life is full of disappointment, right? Christmas with all its symbols of light and peace and goodwill, Christmas just kind of makes you internally want to cross your arms over your chest and sigh out a big, disappointed bah humbug. But cynicism is just another way of living by our own lights. God can't show up and deliver. All there is is night and shadows and me, and I won't get fooled again. But the example and words of Zechariah this morning offers us another way, a third way to reconcile God's promise of light with the ever-present darkness. And this way is neither sentimental nor cynical. We don't have to be cheery or angry all the time. The third way looks like faith. Faith, according to Zechariah in the season of Advent, faith looks like trusting in God's promise of light, even as we also look seriously at the darkness. So in a sentence, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 79 teaches this. Faith takes the darkness of this world seriously. And at the same time, Faith takes God at his word that Jesus, the light, has come, and that light will overcome the darkness. So faith takes 
uh, the darkness of the world seriously and faith takes God at his word that Jesus, the light, has come and that light will overcome the darkness. I've intentionally focused the passage we're looking at this morning to concentrate on Zechariah's song of uh, sung aloud prophecy. When it's, this is sometimes called the Benedictus because that's the first Latin word in the translation of this song. And, but to understand Zechariah's song, we need to see the event that made him want to sing aloud, right? And so we, and we've also got to divide Zechariah's lyrics into uh, the praise for what God has done, but also the sort of prophetic element of what God will do. So our sermon outline is going to do that for us. It's projected behind me. It's also in your e-bulletin. And really, it's just a way of dividing up and breaking down the passage this morning. First, in verses 57 and 67, a promise seen and touched, Zechariah's son. Second, verses 68 through 75, a promise heard and remembered, God's word. Third, and finally, verses 76 through 79, a promise here, but yet longed for, God's son. Let's begin with verses 57 and 67. A promise seen and touched, Zechariah's son. Verse 57 tells what happened to make Zechariah sing out loud. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. That's such a simple, short, matter-of-fact sentence that means so very much. As we saw last week, in the dark and incense smoked out, holy place of the temple, Zechariah the priest made this bold prayer. He asked for the future peace of God's people, and at the same time, he snuck in a prayer for a baby boy for his barren wife, Elizabeth. And in a moment that must have scared old man Zechariah spitless, the archangel Gabriel appeared on the spot, and he promised peace for God's people through none other than a miraculous son, John the Baptist, born to a well-past menopause Liz. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And Zechariah reacts to this giant over-the-top promise like so many of us have and would with disbelief and a demand for a little more proof, a sign at least. How shall I know this? And along with a sentimental lump in his throat, Zechariah feels the cynicism rise like bile. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll be the judge of that, Gabriel. <laughs> Gabriel, the, ju- the angel on the spot, strikes Zechariah mute as a sign. And when Elizabeth gives birth roughly nine months later, uh, this moment described in verse 57 is Zechariah's show me the, mo- the money proof, right? All of a sudden it's clear. Zechariah has seen and he now can't help but believe. And so he writes, yes, his name is John. And we can almost imagine the scene if we slow it down a bit. It's worth slowing down. We can imagine Zechariah bending low over his squirming naked newborn, a baby boy, gazing down at that tufted patch of coarse black hair, watching for the pink corner of his tongue to peek between his parched lips, hunting out the whites of John's slitted eyes to crack open sleep-creased eyelids. Zechariah, we can imagine, would have extended his ring finger for his tiny, intricate, baby-smooth fingers of John, his son, to grasp onto. Zechariah 
has quite literally seen and touched God's promise. And he's struck, not speechless. Instead, his silence is blown open into singing. And Zechariah, like any of us, is changed by that experience, right? Oftentimes, if we pay attention to our lives, it can take far less than an impossible birth to blow us open into singing. For instance, one day, Whitaker Chambers, a self-described convinced communist and embittered atheist, Whitaker Chambers was doing the most ordinary of things. He was watching his baby daughter eat a bowl of porridge in a high chair. And as she began to once again thoughtfully drool all over her high, school, her high chair tray, Chambers was overtaken by the sight of her tiny, intricate ear. I apologize, this is on the slide behind us. If you want it, I can email it to you. It's really beautiful. But anyway, here we go. He says it this way, I can't put it better. My eye came to rest on the intricate convolutions of her ear. Those intricate, perfect ears. The thought passed through my mind, no. Those ears were not created by any chance coming together of atoms in nature. They could only have been created by an immense design. And the thought was involuntary and unwanted. It crowded, out my, it crowded out of my mind. I crowded it out of my mind. But I never wholly forgot it or the occasion. I did not then know that at that moment, the finger of God was first laid on my forehead. Like Zechariah, how shall I know was overcome by a sight and touch that Whitaker Chambers just couldn't shake away. What has it been in your life like that? What are the moments that you return to that you just can't explain? Was it the birth of a child? Was it an answered prayer you almost couldn't even utter? What have your eyes seen? What have your hands touched that has filled you full of God's Holy Spirit and made you want to sing out? Praise the Lord. Praise him. And so beginning in verse 68, Zechariah does sing out, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. But when we look closely at the lyric to Zechariah's prophecy, the words and the images are saturated with references to the Old Testament, right? This song tells us Zechariah's heart and mind turns from the newborn baby snuggled in the crook of his arm to an even bigger promise that this baby is a part of. God's deliverance, promised and now about to come. In other words, when he sees and touches John the Baptist, Zechariah knows that God is not done. And so Zechariah sings of a promise heard and remembered in God's words. Verses 68 through 75 in our second main point in our outline. Verses 68 through 75, if you look there, relate a promise that Zechariah and all of God's people have heard and remembered for generation upon generation upon generation. A full and robust, a political and spiritual salvation. Deliverance is this worldly, and it's about the overthrow of oppression and injustice. We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 71, that we might serve him, our God, without fear, verse 74. And God's promised salvation is otherworldly and meant for our hearts as well. 
the mercy promised to our fathers, verse 72, results in holiness and righteousness before him, God, all of our days, verse 75. And this is such a helpful corrective for our church and our world in 2021, isn't it? But we are constantly trying to reduce God's plan of salvation to a purely physical or purely spiritual matter. But God means to deliver both bodies and souls. And God means to deliver us from corrupt hearts as well as corrupt politics. But where, where did Zechariah hear and remember this comprehensive plan, this comprehensive promise of salvation? He just make it up. <laughs> he heard this full version of salvation. He then remembered it because his pro- it's God's promise in his Old Testament scriptures. One biblical scholar says it this way, William Hendrickson, he counts at least 25 clear references to the Old Testament in just these first eight verses of Zechariah's prophecy. That is a lot of Old Testament perverse, if you do the math. And we see the effect of God's word from Zechariah's well-worn introduction, his opening phrase, blessed be God, verse 68, to the reference to a savior from the house of David, verse 69, all the way to the theological center of Zechariah's song, God's holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, verses 72 through 73. But notice this, how shall I know Zechariah is exercising a deeper level of faith here? He's moving from seeing as believing to living by faith and not by sight. Let me explain what I mean by taking you back to the 1100s and the University of Paris, of all places. The University of Paris in the 12th century was the epicenter of Christian thought. And it was there and then that thinking like a Christian, and really, Christian faith was in a massive crisis. You see, a scholar named Averroes developed a theory that swept nearly every 12th century theologian off of his feet. Averroes' theory essentially reduced faith to reason alone. All truth could be known by philosophical reason and science. Therefore, there was no need for God to reveal himself in holy books like the Bible. And into this crisis of faith and reason came a theologian who many called the dumb ox because he was huge and he was slow to speak, but he was quick to write, and his name was Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas solved this problem by writing something simple but profound. And here it is, one, two sentences. It is impossible that one and the same thing should be believed and seen by the same person at the same time. Hence, it is equally impossible for one and the same thing to be an object of science and of belief for the same person. Oh, it's so simple, right? It's actually kind of confusing. And here's what it means, okay? It all means this. There is only one truth in the world. But we know this truth either by faith or by sight. And some of this truth we can know by sight, but other pieces of this truth, because of our limited amounts of time and expertise and ability, we need faith to know, right? So, for instance, Zechariah only needed his eyes to see his newborn baby boy. But Zechariah needed faith nine months before to believe his barren wife would have a son. Or even more, Zechariah needed faith 
to believe in a coming salvation, first to Israel and then to the world. According to Thomas Aquinas and even Jesus with a Roman centurion just a few chapters later in the book, the Gospel of Luke, living by faith means believing something on the authority of the person who reveals that knowledge to us. Living by faith means believing something on the authority of the person who reveals that knowledge to us. Someone knows more than us and tells us about it and is trustworthy. That's the basis of faith. It's that simple. And we do this daily. We take things on faith, right? But perhaps we've never struggled so much with this as we do in 2021 with faith and with authority. In an era of fake news, nonstop advertising, the politicization of everything, clever voicemail scams, photoshopped images, there are good reasons not to be taken in and be overly sentimental. And at the same time, it's so easy to be cynical about authority. We could so easily develop an authority problem about so many things that we would have once trusted. Now it's all believe it when I'll see it, I'll be the judge of that. But this self-sufficiency, me as the ultimate authority, is not the answer, especially with the things of God. They are beyond our internet research. You cannot Google our way to certainty about God. We can only know God and his plan for the future. Where? How? By believing the words he has spoken to us in the scriptures. And this is the place Zechariah has come to. He is treating God as an authority. He's taking God at his word and the scriptures about a future reality Zechariah cannot see, a coming salvation. And in verses 76 through 79, we can see the way that this crescendos for Zechariah's faith. He's moved from believing a promise that he has seen and touched his son to believing a promise he's heard and remembered in God's word, and to now believing in a promise here and yet longed for, God's own son, Jesus. Our third and final point this morning. The promise of God's son is here for Zechariah in the person of his son, John the Baptist, who Zechariah addresses directly, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That's verses 76 and 77. You see, John is the prophet of the Most High. He's not the son of the Most High. John gives the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, but only Jesus, by the tender mercy of our God, can give the experience of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, but also the sunrise who shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That is the longest, that's the long for promise in Zechariah's day for God's, for God's son, Jesus, to be born to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, so that those who believe in him can have forgiveness. And that is the promise for all of us here today. But we share with Zechariah a longing for Jesus to come again, 
to visit us from on high in a second advent so that he can give light to those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God knows false cheeriness does not like the darkness for long. God knows seeing it all weariness is no way of lasting peace. Like Fleming Rutledge's favorite Christmas card, we wait for an orange-red sunrise to give light and color to the black and white life in the run-down shadows of crumbling America. And it's the moment like these, when justice is delayed, right? When peace feels far off, when I wonder, why in the world do I bother? Why bother? And it's times like these that you and I need our great cloud of witnesses. The encouragement of faithful people in the past. Yes, Zechariah and all of his doubting glory. Thus, and also even the people like we've mentioned before, Whitaker Chambers or Thomas Aquinas. They allow us to, they allow us to move into that posture of faith. But I'd like to end with one more person who shows us what faith can look like. And his name is a poet. His name is Henry Longfellow. In this famous poem, Christmas Bells, Henry Longfellow begins in what feels like a sentimental mood. Longfellow hears the bells on Christmas Day, right? And he takes in their old familiar carols in which he describes as wild and sweet, a voice, a chime, a, a, a chant sublime of peace on earth and goodwill to men. But then Longfellow's thoughts quickly turn to the civil war that is raging all around him in America, year after year, and he can't help but feel cynical about the possibility of peace on earth and goodwill to men, especially with all the households that have lost a loved one in the war. And it's as if the cannon's rounds are drowning out the sound of the Christmas bells' carols. And so Longfellow, in a fit of despair, writes this, there's no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. But then, in the very last stanza, Longfellow turns his eyes from the cheeriness of Christmas festivities, as well as the darkness of the Civil War, and Longfellow turns his faith forward to that promised second advent of Jesus, which perhaps the bells sounded most loudly and deeply. And he writes this, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth and goodwill to men. Our faith is in the God who wore the intricate convolutions of an infant child's ear. Even Jesus, God Almighty, born to sit in a high chair so that we could sit in the high thrones above. Our faith is in the God who used all of his immense authority to put his plans for our rescue in a book with little words that are just the right size for human hands to handle. And finally, our faith is in the God who is not dead. He does not sleep so that we can be assured by his tender mercy that the wrong shall fail the right prevail, and peace and goodwill will break orange-red onto this planet, onto those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death. All of us whose lives and selves are not working the way we want them to work. Someday, one day they will. Jesus will come. He will come. And he will come with healing light in his wings. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the opportunity to sit in it together. Uh, Lord, it, help our unbelief. Help our impatience. Be with our weariness. Comfort us with the healing light of your wings. And come again. Come again. In your name, Jesus, amen.